Chapter 16 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16. Lincoln Elected. Thus the presidential canvass in the United States for the year 1860 began with the very unusual condition of four considerable parties and four different tickets for president and vice-president in the order of popular strength as afterwards shown they were first the republican party which at the chicago convention had nominated as its candidate for president abraham lincoln of illinois and for vice-president hannibal hamlin of maine its animating spirit was a belief and declaration that the institution of slavery was wrong in morals and detrimental to society its avowed policy was to restrict slavery to its present limits in the states where it existed by virtue of local constitutions and laws. Second, the Douglas wing of the Democratic Party, which at Baltimore nominated Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois for president, and whose candidate for vice president was Herschel V. Johnson of Georgia. It declared indifference as to the moral right or wrong of slavery, and indifference to its restriction or extension. Its avowed policy was to permit the people of a territory to decide whether they would prevent or establish slavery, and it further proposed to abide by the decisions of the Supreme Court on all questions of constitutional law growing out of it. Third, the Buchanan Wing of the Democratic Party, which at Baltimore nominated John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky for president and Joseph Lane of Oregon for vice president. Its animating spirit was a belief and declaration that slavery was morally right and politically beneficial. Its avowed policy was the extension of slavery into territories and the creation of new slave states whereby it might protect and perpetuate itself by a preponderance or at least a constant equality of political power, especially in the Senate of the United States. As one means to this end, it proposed the immediate acquisition of the island of Cuba. Fourth, the Constitutional Party, which at its convention in Baltimore nominated John Bell of Tennessee for president and Edward Everett of Massachusetts for vice president. It professed to ignore the question of slavery and declared that it would recognize no political principle other than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws. The first, most striking feature of the four-sided presidential canvas which now began was the personal pledge by every one of the candidates of devotion to the Union. Each of the factions was in some form charging disunion motives or tendencies upon all or part of the others, but each indignantly denied the allegation as to itself. To leave no possible doubt, the written letters of acceptance of each of the candidates emphasized the point. Lincoln invoked the inviolability of the Constitution and the perpetual union, harmony, and prosperity of all. Douglas made his pledge broad and full. The Federal Union, he wrote, must be preserved. The Constitution must be maintained, inviolate in all parts. Every right guaranteed by the Constitution must be protected in law in all cases where legislation is necessary to its enjoyment. The judicial authority, as provided in the Constitution, must be sustained, and its decisions implicitly obeyed and faithfully executed. The laws must be administered, and the constituted authorities upheld 
and all unlawful resistance to these things must be put down with the firmness, impartiality, and fidelity. The Constitution and the equality of the states, wrote Breckinridge, these are symbols of everlasting union. Let these be the rallying cries of the people. Bell declared that if elected, all his ability, strength of will, and official influence should be employed for the maintenance of the Constitution and the Union against all opposing influences and tendencies. Even President Buchanan, in a little campaign speech from the portico of the executive mansion, hastened to purge himself of the imputation of suspicion or fear on this point. He declared that neither of the Democratic conventions was regular, and therefore every Democrat was at liberty to vote as he thought proper. For himself, he preferred Beckenridge. The Democratic Party, when divided for the moment, has always closed up its ranks and become more powerful even from defeat. It will never die whilst the Constitution and the Union survive. It will live to protect and defend both. No progress was made, however, toward a reunion of the Democratic Party. The Buchanan faction everywhere waged unrelenting war on Douglas, both in public discussion and in the use of official patronage. The contest was made with equal obstinacy and bitterness in the northern and southern states. Douglas, on his part, was not slow to retaliate. He immediately entered on an extensive campaign tour and made speeches at many of the principal cities of the northern states, and a few in the slave states. Everywhere he stigmatized the Beckenridge wing of the democracy as an extremist and disunion faction, charging that it was as obnoxious and dangerous as the Republicans. Whatever be his errors, it must be recorded to his lasting renown that he boldly declared for maintaining the union by force. At Norfolk, Virginia, the question was put to him in writing. I answer emphatically, replied Douglas, that it is the duty of the President of the United States and all others in authority under him to enforce the laws of the United States passed by Congress, and as the courts expound them, and I, as in duty bound by my oath of fidelity to the Constitution, would do all in my power to aid the government of the United States in maintaining the supremacy of the laws against all resistance to them, come from what quarter it might. In other words, I think the President, whoever he may be, should treat all attempts, Douglas, to break up the Union by resistance to the laws, as old Hickory treated the nullifiers in 1832. All parties entered upon the political canvas with considerable spirit, but the chances of the Republicans were so manifestly superior that their enthusiasm easily outran that of all of their competitors. The character and antecedents of Mr. Lincoln appealed directly to the sympathy and favor of the popular masses of the northern states. As pioneer, farm laborer, flat boatman, and frontier politician, they saw in him a true representative of their early, if not their present, condition. As the successful lawyer, legislator, and public debater in questions of high statesmanship, he was the admired ideal of their own aspirations. While the Illinois State Republican Convention was in session at Decatur, May 10th, about a week before the Chicago Convention, the balloting for state officers was interrupted by the announcement made with much mystery that, 
an old citizen of macon county had something to present to the convention when curiosity had been sufficiently aroused john hanks lincoln's fellow pioneer and a neighbor of hanks were suddenly marched into the convention each bearing upright an old fence rail and displaying a banner with an inscription to the effect that these were two rails from the identical lot of three thousand which when a pioneer boy lincoln had helped to cut and split to enclose his father's first farm in illinois in eighteen thirty these emblems of his handiwork were received by the convention with deafening shouts as a prelude to unanimous resolution recommending him for president later these rails were sent to chicago there during the sittings of the national republican convention they stood in the hotel parlor at the illinois headquarters lighted up by tapers and trimmed with flowers by enthusiastic ladies their history and campaign incidents were duly paraded in the newspapers and throughout the union lincoln's ancient and local sobriquet of honest old abe was supplemented by the national epithet of the illinois bail splitter of many peculiarities of the campaign one feature deserves special mention political clubs for parades and personal campaign work were no novelty now however the expedience of a cheap yet striking uniform and a half-military organization were tried with marked success when lincoln made his new england trip immediately after the cooper institute speech a score or two of active republicans in the city of hartford appeared in close and orderly ranks wearing each a cap and large cape of oil cloth and bearing over their shoulders a long staff on the end of which blazed a brilliant torchlight this first wide-awake club as it called itself marching with sol soldierly step in military music escorted mr lincoln on the evening of march fifth from the hall where he addressed the people to his hotel the device was so simple and yet so strikingly effective that it immediately became the pattern for other cities after the campaign opened there was scarcely a county or village in the north without its organized and drilled association of wide awakes immensely captivating to the popular eye and forming everywhere a vigilant corpse to spread the fame of and solicit votes for the republican presidential candidate on several occasions twenty to thirty thousand wide awakes met in the larger cities and marched in monster torchlight processions through the principal streets his nominations also made necessary some slight changes in mr lincoln's daily life his law practice was transferred entirely to his partner and instead of the small dingy office so long occupied by him he was now given use of the governor's room in the state house which was not needed for official business during the absence of the legislature this also was a room of modest proportions with scanty and plain furniture here mr lincoln attended only by his private secretary mr nicolay passed the long summer days of the campaign receiving the constant stream of visitors anxious to look upon a real presidential candidate there was free access to him not even an usher stood at the door anyone might knock and enter his immediate personal friends from the sangamon county in central illinois availed themselves largely of this opportunity with men who had known him in field and forest he talked over the incidents of their common pioneer experience with unaffected sympathy and interest as though he were yet the flat boatsman surveyor 
or village lawyer of the early days. The letters which came to him by the hundreds, the newspapers, and the conversation of friends kept him sufficiently informed of the progress of the campaign, in which personally he took a very slight part. He made no addresses, wrote no public letters, held no conferences. Political leaders several times came to make such campaign speeches at the Republican wigwam in Springfield. But beyond a few casual interviews on such occasions, the great presidential canvass went on with scarcely a private suggestion or touch of actual direction from the Republican candidate. It is perhaps worthwhile to record Lincoln's expression on one point, which adds testimony to his general consistency in political action. The rise of the Know Nothing, or the American Party, in the 1854-5, which was only a renewal of the Native American Party of 1844, has been elsewhere mentioned. As a national organization, the new faction ceased with the defeat of Fillmore and Donelson in 1856. Its fragments, nonetheless, held together in many places in the form of local minorities, which sometimes made themselves felt in contests for members of the legislature and county officers. And citizens of foreign birth continued to be justly apprehensive for its avowed jealousy and secret machinery. It was easy to allege that any prominent candidate belonged to the Know-Nothing Party and attended the secret Know-Nothing Lodges. And Lincoln, in the state senatorial and now again in the presidential campaign, suffered his full share of these newspaper accusations. While we have already mentioned that in the campaign of 1844 he put on record, by public resolutions in Springfield, his disapprobation of and opposition to Native Americanism, in the later campaigns, while he did not allow his attention to be diverted from the slavery discussion, his disapproval of know-nothingism was quite as decided and public. Thus, he wrote in a private letter, dated October 30, 1858, I understand the story is still being told and insisted upon that I have been a know-nothing. I repeat what I stated in a public speech at Meridosia, that I am not nor have ever been connected with the party called the Know-Nothing Party, or party calling themselves the American Party. Certainly no man of truth, and I believe no man of good character for truth, can be found to say, on his own knowledge, that I ever was connected with that party. So also in the summer of 1860, when his candidacy for president did not permit his writing public letters, he wrote in a confidential note to a friend, Yours of the 20th is received. I suppose as good or even better men than I may have been in American or know-nothing lodges, but, in point of fact, I was never in one, at Quincy or elsewhere. And now a word of caution. Our adversaries think they can gain a point if they could force me to openly deny the charge, by which some degree of offense would be given to the Americans. For this reason, it must not publicly appear that I am paying any attention to the charge. His position on the main question involved was already sufficiently understood, for in his elsewhere quoted letter of May 17, 1859, he had declared himself against the adoption by Illinois, or any other place where he had a right to oppose it, of the recent Massachusetts constitutional provision restricting foreign-born citizens in the right of suffrage. It is well to repeat this broad philosophical principle which guided him to the conclusion understanding the spirit of our institutions to aim at the elevation of men, 
I am opposed to whatever tends to degrade them. As the campaign progressed, the chances of the result underwent an important fluctuation, involving some degree of uncertainty. The democratic disruption, in the presence of four tickets in the field, rendered it possible that some very narrow plurality in one or more of the states might turn the scale of victory. Calculating politicians, especially those belonging to the party hitherto in power, and who had enjoyed the benefits of its extensive federal patronage, seized eagerly upon this possibility as a means of prolonging their official tenure, and showed themselves not unwilling to sacrifice the principles of the general contest to the mere material and local advantage which success would bring them. Accordingly, in several states, and more notably in the great state of New York, there was begun a quiet but unremitting effort to bring about a coalition, or a fusion as it was termed, of the warring democratic factions, on the basis of a division of the spoils which such a combination might hope to secure. Nor did the effort stop there. If the union of the two factions created the probability, the union of three seemed to ensure certainty, and the negotiations for a coalition, therefore, extended to the adherence of Bell and Everett. Amid the sharp contest of ideas and principles which divided the country, such an arrangement was by no means easy. Yet, in a large voting population, there is always a percentage of party followers on whom the obligations of party creeds sit lightly. Gradually, from talk of individuals and speculations of newspapers, the intrigue proceeded to a coquetting between rival conventions. Here the formal proceedings encountered too much protest and indignation, and the scheme was handed over to standing committees, who could deliberate and bargain in secret. It must be stated to the credit of Douglas that he publicly rejected any alliance not based on his principle of non-intervention. But the committees and managers cared little for the disavowal. In due time, they perfected their agreement that the New York electoral ticket, numbering 35, should be made up of adherence to the three different factions in the following proportion. Douglas, 18. Bell, 10. Breckenridge, 7. This agreement was carried out, and the fusion ticket, thus constituted, was voted for at the presidential election by the combined opponents of Lincoln. In Pennsylvania, notwithstanding that Douglas disapproved the scheme, an agreement or movement of fusion also took place. But in this case it did not become complete, and was not altogether carried out by the parties to it, as in New York. The electoral ticket had been nominated by the usual Democratic State Convention prior to the Charleston disruption, and as it turned out, about one-third of these nominees were favorable to Douglas. After the disruption, the Douglas men also formed a straight or Douglas electoral ticket in order to unite the two wings at the October state election. The executive committee of the original convention recommended that the electors first nominated should vote for Douglas if his election were possible if not, should vote for Breckinridge. A subsequent resolution recommended that the electors should vote for either Douglas or Breckinridge, as the preponderance of Douglas or Breckinridge votes in the state might indicate. On some implied agreement of this character, not clearly defined or made public, the Douglas, Breckinridge, and Bell factions voted together for governor in October. Being beaten by a considerable majority at that election, the impulse to fusion was greatly weakened. Finally, the original Democratic State Committee rescinded all its resolutions of fusion, and the Douglas State Committee withdrew its straight Douglas ticket. 
this action left in the field the original electoral ticket nominated by the democratic state convention at reading prior to the charleston convention untrammeled by any instructions or agreements it was nevertheless a fusion ticket in part because nine of the candidates one-third of the whole number were pledged to douglas what share or promise the bell faction had in it was not made public at the presidential election it was voted for by a large number of fusionists but a portion of the douglas men voted straight for douglas and a portion of the bell men straight for bell in new jersey also a definite fusion agreement was reached between the bell breckinridge and douglas factions an electoral ticket was formed composed of two adherents of bell two of breckinridge and three of douglas this was the only state in which the fusion movement produced any result in the election it turned out that a considerable faction of the douglas voters refused to be transferred by the agreement which their local managers had entered into they would not vote for the two bell men and the two breckinridge men on the fusion ticket but ran a straight douglas ticket adopting the three electors on the fusion ticket by this turn of the canvas the three douglas electors whose names were on both tickets were chosen but the remainder of the fusion ticket was defeated giving lincoln four electoral votes out of the seven in new jersey some slight efforts toward fusion were made in two or three other states but accomplished nothing worthy of note and would have had no influence on the result even if it had been consummated all these efforts to avert or postpone the grave political change which was impending were of no avail in the long six years agitation popular intelligence had ripened to conviction and determination every voter substantially understood the several phases of the great slavery issue its abstract morality its economic influence on society the intrigue of the administration and the senate to make kansas a slave state the judicial status of slavery as expounded in the dred scott decision the validity and the effort of the fugitive slave law the question of the balance of political power as involved in the choice between slavery extension and slavery restriction and thus beyond even this the issue so clearly presented by lincoln whether the states ultimately should become all slave or all free in the whole history of american polities the voters of the united states never pronounced a more deliberate judgment than that which they recorded upon these grave questions at the presidential election in november eighteen sixty from much doubt and uncertainty at its beginnings the campaign swept onward through the summer months first to a probability then to an assurance of republican success in september the state of maine elected a republican governor by eighteen thousand majority in october the pivotal states gave decisive republican majorities pennsylvania thirty two thousand for governor indiana nearly ten thousand for governor and ohio twelve thousand for state ticket and twenty seven thousand on congressmen politicians generally conceded that the vote in these states clearly foreshadowed lincoln's election the prophecy not only proved correct but the tide of popular conviction and enthusiasm rising still higher carried to his support other states which were yet considered uncertain the presidential election occurred on november sixth eighteen sixty in seventeen of the free states namely maine new hampshire massachusetts rhode island connecticut vermont new york pennsylvania ohio indiana illinois michigan wisconsin minnesota iowa california and oregon all the lincoln electors were chosen in one of the free states new jersey 
The choice resulted in four electors for Lincoln and three for Douglas, as already explained. This assured Lincoln of the votes of 180 presidential electors, or a majority of the 57 in the whole electoral college. The 15 slave states were divided between the other three candidates, 11 of them, Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas, chose Breckinridge electors, 72 in all. Three of them, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, chose Bell electors, 39 in all, and one of them, Missouri, Douglas electors, nine in number, which, together with the three he received in the free state of New Jersey, gave him 12 in all, the aggregate of all the electors opposed to Lincoln being 123. The will of the people, as expressed in this popular vote, was in due time carried into execution. As the law prescribes, the presidential electors met in their several states on the 5th of December and cast their official votes according to the above enumeration. And on the 13th of February, 1861, the Congress of the United States in joint session made the official count and declared that Abraham Lincoln, having received a majority of the votes, of presidential electors, was duly elected President of the United States for four years, beginning on March 4, 1861. One feature of the result must not be omitted. Many careless observers felt at the time that the success of Lincoln was due entirely to the fact of there having been three opposing candidates in the field, or in other words, to the dissensions of the Democratic Party, which divided its vote between Breckinridge and Douglas. What merely moral strength the Democratic Party would have gained had it remained united, it's impossible to estimate. Such a supposition can only be based on the absence of the extreme Southern doctrines concerning slavery. Given the presence of those doctrines in the canvas, no hypothesis can furnish a result different from that which occurred. In the contest, upon the questions as they existed, the victory of Lincoln was certain. If all the votes given to all the opposing candidates had been concentrated and cast in a fusion ticket, as was wholly or partly done in five states, the result would have been changed nowhere except in New Jersey, California, and Oregon. Lincoln would still have received but 11 fewer, or 169, electoral votes, majority of 35 in the entire electoral college. It was a contest of ideas, not of persons or parties. The choice was not only free, but distinct and definite. The voter was not, as sometimes happens, compelled to an imperfect or partial expression of his will. The four platforms and candidates offered him an unusual variety of modes of political action. Among them, the voters, by undisputed constitutional majorities, in orderly, legal, and unquestioned proceedings, chose the candidate whose platform pronounced the final popular verdict that slavery should not be extended, and whose election unchangeably transferred the balance of power to the free states. End of chapter 16.